invite you to turn into your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. As you know, we are in a series here on the, uh, the Ten Commandments. We're studying the Ten Commandments. Um, and we have been spending most of our time in Exodus chapter 20, which is the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And we're in week seven so far through this series. We had several weeks where we were looking at some preliminary issues. We looked at like the moral law of God, the eternal moral law of God that is written on human hearts, referred to as the natural law. We looked at um, some other distinctions there. And then we got into the, uh, to the first of the Ten Commandments several weeks ago. And now we're in the fourth commandment today. And so invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20, but I would also like you to, to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. If asked where are the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, you can actually point them to two, well, you could say three places, but the two primary places are in Exodus chapter 20, which comes right after the Lord had brought Israel out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt, and he led them, crossed them through the Red Sea, and leads them to Mount Sinai, where he um, makes a covenant with them. And the foundation of that covenant is this moral law that is the Ten Commandments, written on the tablets of stone by the finger of God. And then in Deuteronomy, which the word Deuteronomy actually means second law which is the second giving of the law. That, and so it's re, restated for us in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So I want us to read both of those this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, and then Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. And if I'm kind of bouncing back and forth and it looks like I'm hunched over, uh, like I'm in pain, it's because I, I am. I, I kind of slipped a disc yesterday. Um, and uh, nothing makes you feel older than to pick up a bowling ball, turn sideways, and then slip your disc in your back. Um, and so that is a little embarrassing. I will say, I did bowl a 213 with a slip disc. <laughs> Paul could testify to this. <laughs> and the holes were really small. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so that said, I just wanted to say I, I bolded 213. That's all I wanted to say. My back's fine. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, do, so excuse me, Exodus chapter 20 um, and Deuteronomy chapter 5. So Exodus chapter 20, beginning of verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And now Deuteronomy chapter 5 beginning in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. For six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall... Not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. 
Indeed, God, we thank you. Um, may we ev never, ever forget the wonderful privilege it is that our maker, our creator, the Lord of all of the universe has spoken to us. We thank you how you have revealed yourself at many times in many ways throughout all of history and that we have this written for us in your word and we thank you that ultimately you have finally and definitively spoken to us in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray this morning, God, that you would by your spirit speak to us, that we would learn from your word, that we would apply this to our lives. We do so to honor you and out of obedience to Christ our Savior. We pray all of this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Let us look at a couple of catechism questions this morning. Has been kind of guiding our time. Question 61 is actually what is the fourth commandment? We've read the fourth commandment from Exodus chapter 20. Um, but question 62, uh, excuse me, that is 62. Question 63 is what is required in the fourth commandment? And so let's say together the answer here. The fourth commandment requireth the keeping holy to God such set times as he hath appointed in his word expressly one whole day in seven to be a holy Sabbath to himself. And now question 64, which day of the seven hath God appointed in, uh, to be the weekly Sabbath? Before the resurrection of Christ, God appointed the seventh day of the week to be the weekly Sabbath. And in the first day of the week, ever since, to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath. So today we're going to be looking at the fourth commandment, um, the, the commandment for the Sabbath. And uh, I've received some, uh, some questions regarding this. Originally, when I plan out my series, what I intend to do is, and I do this for all of my series, I, I plan them out weeks and weeks, months ahead. And um, so I planned out this series all the way into uh, to the end of April. And I thought, you know, we're probably going to have I, I know I'm going to probably get some questions when we get to the fourth commandment. So I designated two days for the, two Sundays for the uh, fourth commandment. And as we got closer, I realized actually I'm probably going to need more because those were going to be very two very large teachings. Uh, drinking from the proverbial fire hose, so to speak. And so um, I thought as a course of, as a matter of wisdom to maybe slow down a little bit and take uh, a little bit each time. So instead of a whole big chunks of it, uh, we'll, we'll spread this out over a couple of weeks. So, so right now we're going to be looking at, uh, to this morning, we're just going to be kind of doing an overview of it. And we'll get into some details and some frequently asked questions next week and what this means for us and details about that uh, in, the, in the following week, Lord willing. Uh, so we're going to be looking at the Sabbath. Let's start with the terms here. We read these. We saw this. And by the way, if you do have any questions and want to, uh, you were wondering like, well, yeah, I've had some questions about this. And what does this mean? Or in the catechism question here, feel free to email me. Um, uh, or through the church email. If you have my email, that's fine. Or the church email, that's fine too. Uh, just email, the, email me those questions and we'll try to work some of those uh, in and answer those in the coming weeks. So let's, go, let's, look by, <clears throat> let's begin by looking at the term Sabbath itself. Where do we get this word? Well, it comes from the Hebrew term uh, Shabbat, Shabbat. And so how it kind of works is they What's the pronunciation of that word? And they kind of, what are the English equivalents of it? And then spelling that out. So what we have, that's called a transliteration. We just take the way it's pronounced in Hebrew, even though the characters are completely different than English, and then we kind of write them out in the English equivalent. And so what we call the Sabbath just comes from that basic Hebrew word Shabbat. And it means restfulness. It's usually just translated for us in English, S-A-B-B-A-T-H. 
And in the Old Testament, there were actually uh, many Sabbaths or special days of rest, usually connected with many of the, um, the festivals, the Jewish festivals and feasts. Sometimes those feasts would be a week long and they would have a Sabbath at the beginning and a Sabbath at the end. Uh, or they would, and various things that would go on in between. So there were many Sabbaths, and sometimes you see that in the plural in the Old Testament, and it's referring to all of those Jewish festivals. But probably the most common understanding of it is the, the actual weekly Sabbath that we read about here in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, and that is the seventh day. And the principles that are applied for that Sabbath day are also applied to the other Sabbaths that were mentioned. Uh, the Greek term is sabbaton, which is basically kind of, they did the same thing. They're just taking the way it's pronounced in Hebrew and then create the term out of, uh, by using the equivalent pronunciation, the equivalent letters to pronounce it. And it basically conveys the same kind of idea. Now, what's the meaning and the significance of the Sabbath. Well, there's two, I think, that are very key to in keeping to mind. What, what are, there's two things that the Sabbath actually does for us and reminds us of. And I want to do so by kind of looking at the Exodus passage in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy 5 in parallel. Um, you can flip back and forth and see this if you would like, but I'd like to just get a, I have it here on the screen so that you can see the parallel between the one that's given in Exodus chapter 20 and the one that's given in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then maybe as we were reading along, perhaps some of you noticed, wait a second, it sounds very similar, but there's, there's some differences here. I want to point out the differences for you. So notice this and um, beginning in verse 8. Exodus 20 says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I've got these highlighted so you can see the differences here. The difference in Deuteronomy chapter 5 is observe the Sabbath day. Maybe, maybe not a big difference. Perhaps it could be. Maybe we'll explore in a little bit. But it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Deuteronomy says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Now that other line there is referencing the Deuteronomy passage because remember many years an entire generation has died in the wilderness from when it was originally given on Mount Sinai they were going to enter into the the promised land but um, the people were fearful and rebellious and the Lord waited until that entire generation passed away and then the Lord led them to the other side of the Jordan River, and they were about ready to cross the Jordan River to enter the land, and that's when the Deuteronomy 5 passage is given. So it's interesting. He references there in the Deuteronomy 5 passage the, the one in Exodus 20, the historical reference for that. So that's one thing to notice. Notice verse 9 of chapter 20, and uh, 9 and 10, and 13 and 14. Of Deuteronomy 5. It's identical. Everything else is identical. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. Uh, but then it changes a little bit here between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy adds, or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock. They both have, so the sojourner who is within your gates or the sojourner that is within your gates. And then Deuteronomy adds that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Now we get to verse 11 of Exodus 20 and verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5. And here's a significant difference. Overall, there's been you know, a couple of things added, but here there's a very significant change between the giving of these commands in Mount Sinai and the giving of these commands on the other side of the Jordan as they're about ready to enter. And this is the basis for why the Sabbath is to be observed for the people of Israel. In Exodus, the Lord says, For in six days the Lord 
made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Okay, notice he's grounding this in the Lord's example for us that goes back to creation. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5, notice the emphasis here. There's no mention of the six days of the Lord and creation. Instead, it says, you shall remember, again, here's the basis for it, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. It's very significant. Not that he's changing it, not that, not that the second one replaces the other one, but that both of the bases here, given for the two, the two givings of this law, for this fourth commandment, both of them are important. And here they are, creation and redemption. The basis for which in Exodus 20 is creation. It's grounded in creation. It's grounded in the fact that the Lord God had created the entire world, and then on the seventh day, after he made man, he rested. But in the second one, it's grounded in redemption. The redemption of God's people from their bondage of sin. Both of them are very important. Both of them form the basis for, the, the underlying basis for why this command is to be given. And then to finish this out, you could see, therefore, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. But in Deuteronomy 5, it says, therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. That's a very important, two very important things to keep in mind as the underlying basis for this Sabbath day of rest is to mark and remember God's creative work and to mark and remember God's redemptive work. His work of creation and his work of redemption. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to get into a lot of frequently asked questions. But I wanted to at least address one of them this morning. And that is, wait a second, isn't the Sabbath... Isn't that part of the ceremonial law? Isn't that a part of the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant? Maybe some of you had this question. And to this, I, I want to spell out quite clearly here that no, this Sabbath command, as it, as it he, is here, both in Exodus chapter 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Sabbath commandment here is not part of what we would call the ceremonial law. Remember, Early in in this series, if you were here, you might remember, we, we established the distinction between the moral law that is eternal, that is grounded in the very character of God himself, and the obligation on human beings as his creatures, just by, by virtue of uh, them, the, God creating us, we have this obligation to obey as creatures would obey the creator. And that it is implanted on the human heart. So it's this eternal moral law. But then we, we also looked at the distinction between that and uh, positive laws that the Lord would give on top of those things that are grounded in those. Still authoritative is Lord's command, but they're things of which he could change if he chose to change. I think of a good example when uh, in uh, creation was... When God created human beings, he told them that they could eat from any of the, the plants, but not to eat any animals. But then after the flood, then the Lord said, and well, now you can eat the animals. And in addition to that, so we had the moral law, but then we saw there were civil laws given for Israel and ceremonial laws for their worship. And so it's sometimes argued, well, actually, the Sabbath, uh, because it's connected to worship, it's part of the ceremonial laws. To this, I would push back and say, no, no, it is not. Because remember, this fourth commandment comes as part of the ten words. 
the 10 words, as opposed to the other instructions given to Moses, given to the people of Israel, those 10 words were written in stone. Remember? They were written in stone by the finger of God. So the 10 are distinct. They're unique from the rest of them, and they are the moral foundation for all of these other laws, positive laws that are uh, on, on top of those. So the Sabbath principle remains, even though it's, it, it seems connected to the ceremonial law, it's not. It's actually part of the ten. And there's some who try to, who realize, well, you know what, the ceremonial laws of, of Israel are uh, completed in Christ. They're no longer binding upon us. The civil laws uh, applied for Israel in the land, except for the, you know, the general equity thereof or the lessons and principles that could be gained from the civil law uh, could, you know, by, by extension be applied to us. And they would say, yes, we would agree that all of the, well, nine of the ten are the moral eternal law, uh, but one of them isn't. I, I think that that's imposing a grid over the top of the ten that's not... That's not justifiable. So the Sabbath principle remains. Now the specific day of it, the specific day of its observation may be changed at God's direction. But the Sabbath principle is there. And as a matter of fact, you could even see uh, examples of how the Sabbath was, was in effect or applied to people even before it's giving at Mount Sinai. It's grounded, as we saw in Exodus chapter 20, it's grounded in the creation itself. It's, it was, the Sabbath rest was created by God on the seventh day. He modeled it for us. As one commentator said that this, how old is the Sabbath? The Sabbath's only one day younger than man goes back to creation itself. And as I said, God models it for us. And what's interesting is that he doesn't need it. Psalm 121, verses 3 through 4, it says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God rested, and he didn't need to rest because he doesn't get tired. I like the illustration from Elijah and the incident with the false prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. What a great story. And then at one point, so, of course, if you know the story, they, there's a contest between Elijah and the Lord God versus uh, the prophets of Baal and Baal. And so he says, okay, you go first, see if it'll consume the sacrifice. And so they start calling down upon Baal and to come and consume the sacrifice, and they don't, and they keep going, and they end up cutting themselves, and they get more uh, riled up in their, um, in, and vigorous in their worship. And Elijah is just, he's just mocking them. At noon, it says, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud. For he is a God, right? Why, why isn't Baal answering you? And he says, either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Maybe Baal is just, he had to take a, a potty break. Or he is on a journey. And perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Now the implication here is the difference between a Baal that would need to go on a potty break or be gone on a journey or be asleep and need to be awakened is that God doesn't. And yet he models that for us. You could perhaps even see this. I, I've see, uh, I saw this uh, suggested too that in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, uh, in the story of Cain and Abel coming together to bring their offerings, um, and it says, and it was at the end of days. If you were to translate it in the Hebrew, it says, and at the end of days, which seems a, a weird expression, except it to perhaps mean, well, at the end of the seven days. So they perhaps knew 
Why, why did they know to come and bring an offering before the Lord and it had to happen on a particular day? Is maybe because of that eternal, natural law, the moral law that was written upon their heart. Or even this. It's helpful to think of um, the Sabbath day existing before Mount Sinai. You could even just look a couple chapters to your left in Exodus chapter 16, verse 22, it says, And on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread. Remember, this is the story of the, the Lord providing manna for them every day. That every day the, they'd wake up and there would be manna for them to eat. And on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread. And in verse 23 it says, He said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow which is the seventh day. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. And they laid it aside till morning and Moses commanded them and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. And he said, eat it today for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. There, today you will find it in the field Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. So here you, you, have, you see a evidence of this, this seventh day of rest to cease from working even before Mount Sinai. The next question, though, is, well, how does that pertain to us in the Christian church? Or how do we, in, in particular, how did we get from the Sabbath, which is the seventh day, to the Lord's day? How do we get from Saturday, or what we call Saturday, to Sunday? And for this, I want to kind of just do a, a survey of various passages that show that there does indeed, under the new covenant, uh, seem to be a shift, a shift in days. I want you to, if, and I was going to put these all on the slides, but um, I thought it would be helpful for us to just look this, look through these together. So I invite you to turn, let's begin in your, the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. And I want you to notice this phrase here, the first day of the week. The first day of the week. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now, this is, it says, it begins here. Now, after the Sabbath, now you've got to set the context here. You see Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. Well, whose tomb? Well, this is Jesus' tomb. Jesus was just crucified a couple of days prior. He was crucified on, on that Friday which was the, the day before the Passover. And as a matter of fact, if you remember from our John series, that um, they needed to speed up the dying process for Jesus and the two criminals with him on the cross. They needed to speed up that process because they could not have dead bodies hanging on a cross or dying bodies hanging on a cross over the Sabbath. You remember this? And their way of doing this was to break the femurs, break the legs. I don't know if it was the femur or if it was the lower leg, but they broke the legs so that they could not push down on that spike in order to take a breath to keep living. And they break the other two guys' legs and they come to Jesus and they'd seen he'd already given up his spirit. And the reason why they needed to do that was because they needed to pull him off the cross and put him into the tomb before the Sabbath day. So then that's where the account ends. It ends on Friday night. There's no mention of anything on Saturday. And now verse 1 of chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And this is the account of the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is on the first day of the week. Mark chapter 16, same account, beginning in verse 1. 
When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early in the first day of the week, notice that there. Mark uses the exact same term on the first day of the week. When the sun had not risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who's going to roll away the tomb for us? And they looked and they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. And they go in and they see the man, young man dressed in white and the angel saying, he is not here. He is risen. Look at Luke chapter 24. you see at the very end of chapter 23 it again speaks of jesus's burial verse 53 of chapter 23 says they took they took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb in a, uh, a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid it was the day of preparation this is friday then the sabbath was beginning the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. So here's Jesus' followers. Then they go and they, amid great mourning and loss, that their rabbi teacher has been crucified, yet they still follow their commandment to honor the Sabbath. Then they notice the next verse, chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. A little later in this chapter, in verse 30, it says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it. Remember, he's with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Jesus appeared to them in that breaking of bread and then he disappeared from their sight and they said, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked with him on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? So those guys run to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem. They say, the Lord is risen. Verse 35, then they told what had happened on the road, how they had made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were about uh, talking about these things, Jesus stood among them and said, peace be with you. So Jesus appears in his presence with his disciples on that first day of the week. John chapter 20, verse 1. Same story, same account, previous chapter. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So again, they, were, they needed to have Jesus buried into the, grave, into the tomb before the Sabbath. And then verse 20, or excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, there it is again. Every single gospel writer mentions the first day of the week. A little bit later in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, he says it again, the first day of the week. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. The Lord shows up and appears to them on the first day of the week. And then notice verse 26 of chapter 20, eight days later. Now this is according to Jewish reckoning, it, it, we would count it like eight days later, so it would be like a Monday, but they would count that day. So it's, his, it's eight days later, as uh, many of the commentators would say, it's the next Lord's Day. It's the next first day of the week. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. You, you get, as you read through this and you read between the lines, you get a clear sense that all of these gospel writers all are ref making very specific reference to the first day of the week. This is a significant day. Resurrection Sunday 
is epoch-changing. As a matter of fact, that's the day that the Lord appears to them, the first day of the week. They're all gathered together the following week, not on the Sabbath day, on that day. They're all gathered together again in that room. And Jesus appears to them again. Now, he didn't limit his appearances to only that day. We have other accounts where he's appeared to them many times. But you get the sense that, boy, if you, were, if you had a chance of seeing the resurrected Jesus just pop into your room, it was a good chance it was happening on the first day of the week. The great redemptive event, the resurrection of Jesus, is marked on a new day, the first day. Here's another great redemptive event, Acts chapter 2. Jesus had appeared to the disciples over the course of 40 days. And he told them to wait in Jerusalem, wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes. And then at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind that filled the entire house where they were sitting. This, of course, is the, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The Hebrew name of it is Shavuot. It's the Feast of Weeks. It comes 50 days after Passover. What day of the week does that land on? The first day of the week. The great, another great redemptive event in the New Covenant age, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, also comes on the first day. Skip to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. You could go through, uh, as you go through Acts, you could do a word study and search in Sabbath in Acts, and you could see the Apostle Paul was still honoring the Sabbath. He was, maybe it was evangelistic. He was going to the synagogues on his missionary journeys and travels, and he always seemed to begin on the Sabbath. He was looking for a, a group of Jews to whom he could preach to them about their Messiah. But you also see that the Christians were gathering together on Acts chapter 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech until night. Here again, the first day of the week. When you read that, you read it, and it's all in lowercase letters. I would encourage you to read it in all capital case letters, or at least capitalized. The first day of the week. This is a technical reference to the Christian day of worship. As a matter of fact, here in Acts 20, verse 7, we get an example of what it was they did there. They gathered together to break bread. It's probably not just a regular meal. This perhaps is a reference to taking the Lord's Supper together. The early church has, had set aside that day, the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath, and it was marking this new covenant era, that's when they gathered, marking the resurrection of Jesus, marking the coming of the Holy Spirit, marking the, the, uh, the, the day that represents the new covenant era. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, the Apostle Paul gives some instructions to the church at Corinth there. Um, he, he is collecting an offering to take back. He says in verse 1, he's collecting an offering for the saints. As I directed the church of, uh, churches of Galatia, he says this, so you also are to do. What does he tell them? This is how I want you to go about doing it. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there may be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Okay, so he says, okay, so here's the plan. Set aside your money. 
And when I come, I'm going to come and take that gift to Jerusalem on the first day of the week. Now, he's not talking to them about them individually setting aside money. Like, like the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, and make sure that when you, you take some of your income for your week, when you're sitting at home, you're relaxing or whatever, and then take some of your money and then set it aside in your own home individually. No, you could, why would he say that? You could set aside your own personal money whenever you want. He's saying, no, on the first day of the week, you all come together and you put that money into one spot. You see? Here, once again, you, as you put all of this together, you see a, a, a pattern here that in the early church, various early, early church, and you see this in church history, we can't even get into all of that, but it clearly, Christians from early on, not centuries later, from early on, had designated the first day of the week as the day of Christian worship. To mark the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Which happens also to be the day that the Holy Spirit comes upon God's people. To mark a new creation. And the real redemption to which the exodus, the redemption of God. God's people out of their bondage of slavery of Egypt is a picture. One more passage. Turn to Romans, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. And I love the picture that is given here of the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning of Revelation. In his exalted state, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest's to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. It's a reference to the, the exalted son of man from, Deutero from Daniel chapter 7. He's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And then Jesus speaks, I am the Alpha and the Omega who says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then notice what John says in verse 9, writing to these churches. He says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, and then he goes on to write about what he hears. But did you catch what he says there? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's recounting to them his, his dear children, his dear people to whom he's writing, and he's telling them, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he doesn't need to explain what the Lord's day was. They knew what the Lord's day was. The Lord's day is the first day. That first day is Jesus' day. The first day of the week, or what we call Sunday, it is not only is it the first day of the week, it is the Lord's day. It's interesting here, too, the, the adjective that is used here is kuriakos, and it's of the Lord or belonging to the Lord. It's only used two times in the scriptures. It's used here to describe, and it means possession of, ownership of. This is a, the day that the Lord himself owns as his. 
The other time that adjective is used, it is used for the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So in the same way that that supper is unique and different from all other suppers, because that supper is the Lord's. He owns that. That is his. So too that this day, which corresponds with the first day of the week, marking the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, that's his day. So I wanted to give you a little sketch here. How is it that we got into the old covenant from the Sabbath being the seventh day to it being Sunday on the Lord's day, the first day of the week? Here's, a, here's some biblical evidence in that direction. And the early church knew exact. This is what they practiced universally. You, do, you could go through all of the uh, European, the, the Roman Empire at the time. You were to stop in and visit every church um, in, say, the very beginning of the second century. And you wanted to find out where a Christian group would be. You wouldn't look on a Tuesday or a Thursday or a Friday. You would look on Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Universally, that was the day that Christians gathered for worship. So what do we do? And I want to... We're going to get into this a little bit later as we go into the series, like, what can we do? What can't we do? Because I imagine many of you have questions. Well, like, you've grown up in churches, and there's been debates about, well, can you do this sort of thing? And can you, can you mow your yard? Can you ride your skateboard? Can you do all of that? I'll answer all of those for, for you. I have a 47-page document that's bullet-pointed. tells you everything that you can do and can't do. And it's growing by the day. So if you want to know for real, I'll give it to you. Just kidding. That's just kidding. But I tell you what, what we do do. We, we rest and we worship. We rest and we worship. We worship to the glory of God. We do it publicly, which is what we're doing now. We worship to the glory of God privately. So maybe in the afternoon, you're reading scripture. You're praying. You're God-glorifying thing. Maybe you're listening to a Christian uh, hymns and songs, or you're listening to a Christian book, those kind of things. You could worship publicly, but you could also do it privately. And you rest. You rest to the glory of God. There's other things that we'll get into a little bit, but if I could just summarize, that's, that's what our obligation is, to rest and to worship. The Christian Sabbath, this kind of, the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day, the first day, that's set aside for us for rest and for worship. And God has commanded this for us as human beings to spend this just unhurried time of worship and rest each week. As we'll get into in the coming weeks, Lord willing, Jesus himself said in his debates with the Pharisees, he said that, Man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the man, for man. And when I think of the Sabbath and I think of the, how God desires for us to rest, to rest in him, to worship him. I, this last week I, I, or a couple weeks ago, I came to the image of when our kids were smaller, the older kids, and, and how they would get uh, so they would play so hard, they would be up all day, they would be playing, and I'm talking like when they were, you know, three, two, three, four, and they would be tired, and they would get really cranky and crabby. And, and parents here, have you seen this on your, your kid's face? And what, what's your first thing that when you see them where they're just having their meltdown, and what do you say to them? You're tired. It's nap time. That's what we say. We'd say, oh, someone needs a nap. Someone needs a nap. Right? And then when you say that, oh, man. <laughs> then you get the, then the fit starts coming. No, I don't want to sleep. They were objecting to the very thing they needed. Kids, have you done this? You remember doing this? You need a nap. And you're, you're like, that's, you know, like, the worst thing you could hear because all, you just want to keep playing. But keep playing is not what you need. 
The parents can obviously see what it is that they need, and the kids can't. You need to quit playing. You need to lay down and rest. When you wake up, you'll be refreshed. You'll be happy again and ready to play all over again, right? You're forcing them to nap is out of love. You're forcing them to nap is out of recognition for what you know what they need better than they do. And that's exactly what I picture when, when it comes to this, this discussions about the Sabbath or the Lord's day. We need it. We're exhausted from our labors. And we get cranky. I get cranky. I got cranky this morning. The cares of this world press upon us. How many of you go week to week and never feel the cares of work pressing upon you or building upon you? We get cranky and we get crabby and God says someone needs to worship and rest. Right? You need to come to me. You gather before me as my people. You hear the word of the gospel. You receive and rest in my son, Jesus, who labored for you, who fulfilled the law for you, who took upon himself the curse of the law for you on your behalf. In fact, here, take some bread and some wine to refresh your body and your soul. Then enjoy God's people. Talk to them. Hear them, listen to them, and pray for them. Encourage them. And then go rest. Take a nap. One of the most godly things you could do today is take a nap. And then wake up and play. Refresh yourself. Put thoughts of work out of your mind. Maybe you'll go in fellowship with other people, or maybe you could go and minister to other people, maybe in a home group or, or the like. Or there's other people who just need something. Sometimes there's, there's uh, works of necessity or mercy that need to be done, and we'll get into that. And if so, then serve them. Serve them in Christ's name. That's what the day is for. A God who is concerned enough to provide <clears throat> For us, each day of the week is given us this day of rest, and that is indeed wonderful. Someone needs to worship and rest. That's what he calls us to. So let me end with this. As the Sabbath day, the seventh day, marked God's creation and redemption, so the Lord's day, the first day, marks God's new creation and redemption in Christ. And Lord willing, we're going to unpack some more of this uh, in the weeks to come. But just remember, today is for worship and for rest. Someone needs to worship and to rest. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you... As a loving Heavenly Father, look upon your children and know exactly what it is that we, that we need. We're thankful that you have given us a day to worship you and to rest in you. And that you give this, it's not a burden, that you give this as a gift to us. And may we learn to receive this gift and to honor you with it. We thank you that indeed this day is yours. It is the Lord's day. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And likewise, Lord, not only have you given us a day, you've given us a, a supper that is also yours. And we get to come and take this supper now as your people. We offer you thanks for the way you provide for us. And we now come to this table 
to take this as, as a means of grace. We're nourished in the truth of the gospel of your son, Jesus, who labored for us and has entered into his rest. We thank you that you give us these days to rest in and to receive this truth until we get to likewise enter our final rest with him. But we're grateful that you feed us and nourish us from now until then. And so we give you thanks for this meal. It's in Christ's name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen and amen. So friends, we're going to come to the table, take these elements. If you're we, we're doing it this way so that if you come down the aisle here in the middle, you can kind of then go back that way and go see if that uh, helps to streamline some things. So invite you to stand. And let's come to the table together. Take these back to your seats and we will take them together. Hear the words of the institution of our, the supper of our Lord. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also... He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And let's say this prayer together, shall we? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have fed us in this, the supper of our Lord, and have united us with him through faith and given us a foretaste of the heavenly blanket in your eternal kingdom. Send us out in the power of the Holy Spirit to live and to praise and glory for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. Friends, let's stand for our closing um, benediction. First, a doxology here to our Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to prevent you, present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.
May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, whose divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Thank you.